Our psalm of the day is Psalm 119, 1 through 24. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wonder from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statues. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Our New Testament lesson this morning is found in Revelation chapter 2. We're reading verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We do ask that you give us ears to hear all that the Spirit reveals to your church. Father, we pray that you give us understanding and that you speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. It came as somewhat of a a surprise to everyone this week, and just to go ahead and announce this, but we saw Dottie Brooks pass away this week. Many of you are friends with Dottie, long-term member 
of our church, and she did die early Thursday morning. She'd been sick for the last several weeks, was in and out of the hospital, but no one was quite aware how severe the condition was. She declined quickly on Wednesday. Um, and so the funeral will be held Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock here at Christ Church Mandarin. Please join us. All are welcome. The family wanted to thank our congregation for being so kind and caring to Dottie over the many years. She had a few things that she cared about in her older age, and one of them was Christ Church. She was very devoted to you and uh, to our congregation, and so it is a big loss. It has been quite sad this week. Uh, to know that we will not get to see Miss Dottie as so many of the kids know her. My daughter exclaimed, who's going to pray for me now? (laughs) Because Miss Dottie would come and take her prayer request every Sunday and then follow up with her the next week. And she did so for my kids and many other kids. Um, And so please join us on Tuesday as we grieve and also give thanks to God. She was a beautiful lady inside and out, and it'll be a wonderful chance to give thanks to God for her life. Tuesday, 10 o'clock, child care will also be available uh, that morning, and so uh, please be with us. We do also have to deal with Revelation chapter 2, and I want you to imagine a certain scenario as we begin today. Imagine that you've heard that Jesus was coming to fill the pulpits of the churches in our immediate area. That over the next several weeks, Jesus was going to be the guest preacher in churches surrounding us. Christian Family Chapel, Mandarin Presbyterian, Church of Our Savior, the Church of the Apostrophe, and Christ Church. Jesus was going to turn up and preach about the spiritual health of each of these congregations in order to renew them in their sense of mission to go out into the world. Imagine that scenario. And imagine the great delight it would be to go visit at another church, for you to turn up there on the weekend that Jesus preaches so that you could hear what he had to say about that congregation. Perhaps you would be thinking, well, maybe he'll confirm what I've always thought about them. Maybe kind of fun. And then you may have a little bit of hesitation and trepidation the week that Jesus was going to show up here and you saw the cars flooding into the parking lot (laughs) with people coming perhaps to hear what they think Jesus would say to us. When we arrive in Revelation 2, what we have is Jesus speaking to another congregation. Today, you get to overhear a conversation that Jesus is having with a particular church at a certain point in history. And so you get to listen in to his assessment of their spiritual health and how they are doing as a lampstand, as God's light in the world, as we saw at the beginning of this vision. But there's a catch to this. We don't simply get to be an audience. When Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, into very historical, solid situations, into a very particular church with particular struggles, we're not simply off the hook. This isn't irrelevant to us. We're not simply listening to their dirty laundry. Because at the end of each of these seven letters, Jesus says this, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Jesus knew that everyone would read this letter. It was intended to be read by all seven of the churches there in Asia. And of course, he knew that it would be read by all churches everywhere. That we're not just an audience, bystanders to this. That Jesus addresses us. That he speaks to us and that he brings a word from the particular circumstances of the church in Pergamum into our lives as well. And that, yes, Jesus is here today speaking. He has a living and active word for us. A two-edged sword comes forth from his mouth, and it cuts, and it divides, and it heals, and it also can bring judgment. That this is the Jesus whose presence we are in today as we hear his word. And as we hear his address to this church, this ancient church in Pergamum, we receive three things from it, three things that we hear from him. And we learn from Jesus about our civic duty that's rooted in our central commitments that's leading us into a festive future. This is what Jesus does when he turns up at church to preach. He's going to speak to us about our civic duties, our central commitments, and our festive future. And so let's deal with each of these. First, our civic duty. If you'd look in Revelation 2 in verse 12 and 13, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Pergamum was the seat of Roman government in this area of Asia. There was a temple built for the purposes of worshiping the Roman emperor in 29 BC. That was three years before the temple was built in Smyrna. They had temples also dedicated to Zeus, to Athena, to Asclepius, and to Dionysius. It was a city built on Roman religion and emperor worship. The way that the city was constructed visually, the topography and the architecture was impressive. The city rose a thousand feet above the plain with an acropolis crowning it all where the temples were concentrated. Everyone knew who the ruler of Pergamum was. It was the Roman gods led by the Roman emperor. There was no question And this is why Jesus uses the words of where Satan's throne is. Some people find this to be too strong of language and and a bit off-putting. But Jesus is referring to the concentration of pagan religion and pagan religious festivals that were happening here in Pergamum and the seat of Roman power. And so it's common then to ask, well, is Jesus saying that Rome is Satan? And the book of Revelation is more nuanced than that. If you were to turn to chapter 13 in verse 2, you find that there is a dragon, and the dragon is Satan. But what the dragon does is he delegates his authority and power to different beings, to different symbolic beings in the book of Revelation. And he delegates his power to a beast who is an earthly political power. And in the context of Pergamum, this was Rome. And so, yes, Rome was an agent of Satan that defied God and his church, 
that stood against the testimony of the gospel and was holding it up. But that's not to say that Satan hasn't worn other dresses, that he hasn't used other beasts, but that Satan does use earthly political power to go about his game in defiance against God. And so the Roman government, Jesus can say, I know where you dwell, where Satan is enthroned. But this is the way it worked out in the first century. You see, because the citizens were to swear allegiance to Rome. In the public court, there would have been a bust of Caesar, a carving of his head, and below that would have been a fire that was burning with a bowl below it. And citizens were to sprinkle incense over the fire, making an offering to Caesar, and then they were to profess allegiance and say, Caesar is Lord. This is what was expected of all the citizens of Pergamum when they came into the public court. We don't know anything about the young man Antipas, but we simply know that he was a faithful witness who refused to make that profession. He was considered not to be a good citizen. He was considered to be a traitor. He was not a good patriot because he would not swear his allegiance to the government that had brought peace and stability to the world. And so he was killed. The Romans had a rationale and a logic behind it. They had an airtight argument against him. The case was actually fairly easy to settle. And Antipas was put to death. And so Jesus commends the church because they had held fast to his name, even all the way down into death. And this was what Antipas had done. And it's important for us to understand how these early Christians were working out their relationship to the governing authorities. Because you see, the New Testament has a lot to say about Christians submitting to governing authorities. Paul speaks of it in Romans 13. Peter addresses it in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Paul returns to it in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that Christians are to be submissive to governing authorities, even ungodly governing authorities. And that is because Christians recognize that governing authorities have their power as a stewardship from King Jesus, whether they recognize it or not. And so we submit to them up to a certain point, that we acknowledge their authority comes from God. And so we obey them. We honor them. Paul tells us to pray for them. Several years ago when I first arrived, and I had no idea it would have been that controversial, but I asked you to start praying for the president. And then I began hearing little murmurs through the congregation that people were a little disturbed of praying for Barack Obama. And then I had one older member of our congregation approach me and say, you know, I was ruffled the first week you asked me to do that. And I've been studying my Bible, and I came across 1 Peter 2 and said, honor the emperor. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for those in authority. Thank you for teaching me this. You see, because we don't just submit ourselves to governing authorities when they're in our political party or they agree with our political philosophy or governance and whether they're giving us a tax break. That's not what the New Testament says. As nice as some of those things may be, that we're called to submit ourselves, 
recognizing that even ungodly political power, that they will be held accountable by King Jesus for their exercise of power. Our part is to be submissive to them insofar as we can. And this is where Antipas is so helpful for us. Because you see, he was killed. He refused to submit at a certain point. He understood that he was to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he was to render to God the things that are God's. And so when he was asked to say that Jesus, that Caesar is Lord, he refused to do so. He would not offer to Caesar that which only properly belongs to God. He would not swear ultimate allegiance and loyalty and give worship to a steward. And so Rome did what was inside of its power. It could take Antipas' life. And they decided to do so. But friends, we serve a great king. Revelation 1 verse 5 tells us that Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth. And those kings don't always acknowledge that, that they are in rebellion against him oftentimes, but it doesn't change the fact because Jesus is not up for re-election. He won. The holy war has been completed, that he won his great victory over sin and death and is now implementing it and will one day return to make all things new. It'll be decisive and final. And so we render our allegiance to only one, and we serve only one, and that relativizes all political power. And it ought to relativize the thinking about politics in our hearts and minds as well. That there is one we serve, that he is enthroned in in the heavens at God's right hand, ruling over all things. And so it's helpful because we learn our civic duty. And our civic duty is that we be in alliance with Jesus, that we submit ourselves as far as we can to governing authorities, that we be compliant citizens, and that we seek to use our citizenship to advance the gospel, and that we remind governing authorities themselves that they will answer to King Jesus for their exercise of power. That's the civic duty of the Christian. Several years ago, when I first moved to Washington, D.C., I had a 40-minute commute in the mornings in which I was riding a small bus to a metro train to another metro train and then walking for 10 minutes. And so being a Southerner, I thought when you got on the metro that uh, people would be talking. So I was wearing my khaki pants and my blue shirt, and that's not the uniform everywhere in the country. And, um, and then I discovered that no one was talking. Everyone was doing this and was preparing for their day in a stoic silence. So I began to read on my 40-minute commute. It was great. I had, I had an hour and 20 minutes of reading per day. One of the books that was given to me at that time was a book from the 1800s by a man named J.C. Ryle, and I commend it to you. It's called The Five English Reformers. It's a short biographical sketch of five of the English reformers who were martyred. And I was reading about several of the reformers. What happened was after the English Reformation took root, Edward VI was the king who was driving the Reformation forward. 
He died unexpectedly at age 16, and Queen Mary comes back to the throne in 1553. She was a committed Catholic, and for political reasons and all kinds of of different stuff, she decided to undo the Reformation. She understood that there were certain men in the country who had undue influence and that she needed to imprison them. One of those was a man named Hugh Latimer. He was a bishop in the Church of England, and his main contribution to the Reformation was his preaching. He was a great preacher. And so Latimer was sought after by Mary in order that she could put him to death. He was actually out in the countryside preaching, and he was given advance warning. He was now an old man, still ministering the gospel. Actually, a quite beautiful picture. Many wanted him to go and hide, and he refused to do so. This is what he said. He said, I do not doubt but that God, as he has made me worthy to preach his word to two excellent princes, those were the two prior kings of England, so he will enable me to witness the same unto the third. He was ready to give testimony of his faith in the public court. So he was taken to the Tower of London, and he was held for two grueling years. They were out of space in the tower because so many people were there, and so he was thrown into a cell with many of his compatriots, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and John Bradford. They went through a pretty difficult and trying two years where they were underfed, they were examined, they were forced not to sleep, they were attempting to break them. October 1555, Latimer has his final trial. He knew that the guilty verdict had already been passed down before the trial began. He said very little in his trial. He didn't give elaborate defenses, but he simply and plainly spoke the truth. He was led out where he was stripped down to his underclothes, an old man, and he sees that his friend Nicholas Ridley is being led out as well. They embrace one another. They had been fellows in ministry. They had been fellows in prison, and now they would be fellows in death. They were chained together there in Oxford, and then the fire was lit beneath them. As the fire was lit beneath them, Latimer says this to Ridley. Listen carefully. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. He understood very clearly this connection that's being made in the book of Revelation between the lampstand and its role of of being God's representative in the world, of shining God's light, and of holding fast to our witness that this is our civic duty. That if you want to be a good citizen, if you want to be a good patriot, ultimately a good citizen of the world, it's to remind the world of its true Lord, who is truly king, who rules over everything, who has defeated the greatest enemies that we could ever have. That was what Latimer understood. And he understood that no matter what any earthly king did to his body, that was nothing that Jesus could not undo. That Jesus is the one who would return, that Jesus would vindicate him despite all the injustice, that Jesus would make this right. That was the trust 
that Ridley and Latimer both burned in the flames in that day. Friends, that's our civic duty. It's the call to world to remember that Jesus is the true king and that he has been enthroned through the path of death and resurrection, dying for our sins, rising for our justification to make all things right. Second piece of what we would hear if Jesus turned up in church is he would speak to us about our central commitments. Verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. So after commending the church, he is now moving to critique. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, And the church had held fast to Christ. We heard this already in verse 13. Yet you hold fast to my name. But yet there was a dynamic at work inside of this congregation while they were being faithful to Jesus, holding fast to his name, that some were holding fast to the teaching of Balaam. And some were holding fast to the teaching of Balak. And so there was a compromise that had taken place inside the body. These two parties that are mentioned, of the Nicolaitans and also the teachings of Balaam, they seem to be one and the same heresy. We can't quite be sure. But it's helpful to notice that Balaam is a figure from the Old Testament. It's Numbers chapter 25 and verses 1 and 2. And it is when Israel is on the way through the wilderness, out of Egypt, into the promised land. They were about to attack the Moabites. And then they are deceived. And the men of Israel begin having sexual encounters with the women of Moab, perhaps taking them as wives. And then they are led into idolatrous worship of the God of Moab, Baal. And so they were completely compromised. They lost their light. They lost their function. That Their central and core commitment that they were to have no other gods before the living and true God who had brought them out of Egypt, they had forsaken that. And what Jesus is saying is that inside of this system of the Roman gods, that the church here in Pergamum had some who were compromising themselves, probably under understandable pressure, and that they had given themselves to still swearing allegiance to Caesar, perhaps to even participating in the worship of the other gods and eating food sacrificed to idols because they didn't want to cause a mess. Perhaps they would tell themselves, well, this idol isn't real, so it doesn't matter whether I eat this or not. But Jesus was saying, this compromises you. It implicates you in the worship of that which is not a god. You are swearing allegiance to that which is not the true god. And so the problems were doctrinal, And they were also ethical. And friends, it's important for us to realize that they were not being critiqued by Jesus for matters of the periphery. They were not being critiqued because they didn't have seven quiet times during the week. 
They were not being critiqued because they didn't know what to quite think about peripheral doctrinal matters. They were being critiqued about the central concerns of the Christian faith, things that are clearly revealed, things that we are to believe and give ourselves to, and ethical standards that we are to uphold in order to respond appropriately to God. And yes, so some of the church had rationalized all kinds of things. They had told themselves it was okay, and this seems to be the sins of the Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam. And the community, in turn, those who had held fast to Jesus, hadn't taken care of it. This is one of the sins of Pergamum that they had tolerated and they had put up with those who were entering into these idolatrous practices. And here lies the tension for any church. See, we can resolve to love and forsake the sacredness of truth, or we can pursue truth at the expense of love. And oftentimes it feels like churches are pulled to those poles where in order to tolerate, they just simply love and lay the truth aside. We're not going to worry about the truth that flows from Jesus' lips about what our obligations are to him in our doctrine and in our ethics. Or we're going to hold so hard and fast to the truth that we're going to put off everyone around us and communicate that no one is pure enough for us. John Stott says it well. He says, love becomes sentimental if it's not strengthened by truth, and truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. And we are called to walk in a manner in which we hold the truth in love, but where we also clearly are willing to say no, that there is integrity to our beliefs, that when we stand upon something, we have central and core commitments that are sacred and inviolable that there is to be no other God before us, that we are not to be engaged in adultery and sexual immorality of any sort. And so Jesus draws the line for the church, and he calls them to repent. And he says, if you don't repent, then I will come among you and war against you with the word of my mouth. Jesus is serious, not simply to be a threatening bully, but in order to preserve the church's missional witness in the world that she was to be a lampstand, shining forth his glory into the world. And by this compromise, they were not doing so. Now it's important for us, it's extremely important for us, to always consider that call to have integrity in our belief and in our lives and the way that we live. Inside the Presbyterian tradition, We've not always been the best about keeping the main thing the main thing. One of my professors was Professor John Frame, and he wrote a very influential and helpful article that I read as a young man, and it was entitled Machen's Warrior Children. You have to know a bit of Presbyterian history, so if you've missed that, forgive me. But Machen was one of the founders of the Northern Presbyterian Conservative Church, but what Frame contends is that after that, after Machen fights the war against what was unorthodox doctrine, that a warrior spirit set itself inside of Presbyterianism, and that we became really bad 
at taking peripheral doctrines and bringing them into the central part of the church's life and saying, hey, if you don't agree with this peripheral doctrine, then you're going to be outside. And that has been a dynamic that has plagued it, plagued the Presbyterian church over the last decades. And friends, we need to know by reading our Bibles and being intimately familiar with God as to what He emphasizes and what is central and core, that everything is not central and core, that everything is not a breach in fellowship. But then yet there are things where there is a clear demarcating line, and Jesus is on these central commitments. He's addressing them clearly. A few weeks ago, had a call from a young pastor who was considering a job, and it would be a job that would be the task of revitalizing a church, and he was trying to weigh whether he should take that job and that calling. He had had discussion with the elders of the church and learned the church's history, and the church had become a narrow and nasty place. It cut its membership in half in the last decade, and it was struggling The church is aware that it needs to change, but not aware quite of what the problem is. One of the main issues at the church that becomes clear is that peripheral doctrines have have come into the center and now define it. That it's not defined by its convictions of the gospel and the great love of God and the great hope of the world that will come in Jesus, but it's defined by all kinds of obscure concerns. And people don't feel like they can relate to it. And so the young pastor who's considering the job, he sends me an eight-page document. It's an eight-page document that he had put together about the reform and revitalization of this church. He asked me to read it, and so I looked at it and handed it back to him. He said, you didn't read it. I said, I did. I looked through it. And what he had done is, on those eight pages, seven of them were committed to the reform of the church's worship. And he knew that I was a person who's interested in church worship and liturgy and these type things. And so I think he handed it to me with a sense of approval that I would love this document. And I looked at it, and there was one page of eight that was committed to the reform of the church in its beliefs and ethics And I just commented to him, I said, you know, the main problem at this church doesn't seem to be its worship. Sure, there may be some things that you want to change, but let's be honest, most of that's peripheral. It's a matter of taste and style. The issues that have made this church ingrown and nasty and narrow are doctrinal and ethical. And you need eight pages on that. You don't need anything about the church's worship. That if you want to see it revitalized, this is what has to happen, is that the periphery has to go back to the periphery, and that the things central that Jesus calls us to hold fast to have to be at the center and the core. Because, friends, this is a matter of life and death for the church. If the church loses its central convictions, what it's to be built on, it does forsake being a lampstand in the world. And so we hold our central commitments Jesus would speak to us about this. And finally, when Jesus turns up in church, he's also going to speak to us about our festive future. Obviously, these letters in Revelation have a heavy cast to them, last week being the most difficult of them all. 
where there is a clear message that those who identify with Jesus are going to share in Jesus' way, that there is going to be difficulty, that you're going to be going against the cultural tide, that the dragon does have his beast, and that beast will find ways to oppose you in various ways. And so Jesus, in each of these letters where churches are facing difficulty, he gives them encouragement. He wants to help them endure. He wants them to find strength, to be able to draw down from him in order to persevere and continue. And so we find this beginning in verse 17. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And Jesus gives us three images here that are to encourage us where he is speaking of a great, communal, intimate, festive future that he has reserved for you. And Jesus believes that the vision of this great, festive future is enough to draw you, to pull you along through any manner of tribulation, through any burning flames, through any insult, through any financial difficulty that your faith may cause you. And so he speaks first of the hidden manna. You can turn in Revelation 19 to find what Jesus is speaking of in verse 7. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when Jesus speaks of the hidden manna, he is speaking of this great marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the meal that Isaiah speaks of in chapter 25, where the veil of death would be removed from the nations and that God would wipe the tears from our eyes and that the bridegroom would, would be with his church. It's awesome imagery of Jesus sharing a sacred meal with us, us in his presence, one with God, the stain of sin having been removed. He then speaks of a white stone that we would have. And the white stone was used for multiple purposes in the ancient world, but two primary ones that we know. That in the case of judgment, there would be a white stone for an innocent verdict and a black stone for a guilty verdict. And oftentimes when you were invited to a festival, you could also receive a white stone. It was your invitation. And I believe it's proper to combine both of those in this case because Jesus will give you a white stone, which is your verdict. That though the world may find you guilty and irrelevant, Though the world may find you to be a bad citizen, though the world may say you are a traitor to humankind because of your exclusive religion, Jesus says, no, you're mine. That Jesus will vindicate us. Jesus counts us innocent. Jesus says we're not guilty because of him. We stand in him. And he is the basis of our invitation into that great festive banquet and Jesus has already given us the down payment. 
He has made everything possible for us. And we'll receive the future installment of God's new world on that great day when we come into the great festival of the bridegroom. And he says upon that stone will be written a new name. And that new name we discover in Revelation 22 and verse 4, the final chapter of the Bible. That new name is the name of Christ. That he places his name upon us. He grafts us into all that he is. He brings us into his family. He has authority over us. And we come to dwell in his new world that's free from death. It's free from the beast. It's free from the dragon. It's been purged and made right. It's free from our sinful hearts as well. That's the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is calling the church to a future orientation. The primary emphasis of our faith is what we receive in Jesus today. Then we need to take a hard look at our faith. If the primary emphasis of your faith is what you receive in Jesus today, then you do need to take a hard look at your faith. Because Jesus is decisively future-oriented. He promises you that you're going to have trouble in the present. That it's going to be hard. That you identify with me in the way. That yes, he gives us comfort. And he is present with us now. He has promised those things. But that the decisive comfort we are looking for is the healing of our world. Where everything is made right. And so allow that great vision of things that go beyond your imagination. That you'll never be able to fully understand everything that God holds out for you in the future. Allow that to pull you along, especially through trials and difficulties. And so what would Jesus say to Christ's church if he were to turn up and preach? It's actually not a mystery. He's already said it. He reveals himself to these seven churches. We already know And from the church in Pergamum, we learned that he would speak to us about our civic duty to be witnesses to his kingship overall. That this civic duty is rooted in our central commitments, that he is God and Lord and ruler, and that we are to hold fast to him. And then this vision of a festive future is to drive us forward. Jesus would be encouraging us. He would be cheering for us to remember that great world that lies ahead. And he would be calling us to take up our light, be a lampstand, and shine. That's why Jesus speaks, even harshly at times, critically of the church. It's for her renewal. It's for her life. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we need your help that your call upon our lives, the civic duties that you give us, the pressures that we face to compromise are real. Help us to remain committed to the central and main things. May we not be compromised in those, but may we hold fast to Jesus. And may we have the courage to have integrity of belief, to say no to those things that are not pleasing to you, that are not part of your doctrine and a part of the ethics that you call us to. And Lord, we pray that a great festive future would compel us forward, that we have a vision of things to come, and that we know everything that you offer to us. 
and that we hold out and delay pleasures for that world as we serve Jesus today. We ask for your help in Christ's name.